So also, my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. This is one of the single most terrifying, the single most soul-shaking warnings in all of Scripture. It's a warning repeated so often throughout Scripture that we must recognize it as one of the single most important challenges, single most important teachings, single most important warnings in all of Scripture. My Heavenly Father will do to every one of you this if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. And why? Why will the Lord do this? Why is this such an important warning? As we will see, because it violates, it contradicts everything about the Lord. There is good news. We'll start with the good news. The God who created, the one true God who rules and who reigns over all things, the God who judges the earth with equity and judges the peoples in righteousness, the God before whom all of us must bow, the one who is to be feared above all others, the Bible gives us this most excellent news. He is a God who forgives. He is a God who shows mercy who showers his children with wave upon wave of grace. For everyone who truly calls out to him in faith, who repents of their sin, who turns to the Lord Jesus Christ, for all who truly believe in the person and work of Christ, listen, the Lord forgives you. The Lord showers his mercy on you. The Lord cancels a debt that you could never have repaid. The 10,000 talents of sin that that, that you've made for sin for which you were to be judged, it's been canceled. It's been paid for by Christ. It has been absolved by the God who forgives if you are truly one who has turned to Jesus in faith. And this merciful, forgiving quality of God is one that is repeated throughout Scripture. It is central to who God is. He is a forgiving God. A number of examples, just to let this beautiful theme of God's forgiveness wash over you and, 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 and encourage you this morning. You go all the way back to Moses, the servant of God, when he asked to see the glory of God. And the Lord obliged Moses by saying in Exodus 33, verse 19, I will make my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and will show mercy upon on whom I, show, I will show mercy. And the Lord took Moses, and he placed him in the cleft of a rock, and covered him with his hand, and then passed by Moses, proclaiming this, In Exodus 34, verses 6 to 7, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. This is the Lord's self-definition to Moses. 
This is the Lord's description of his name to Moses, merciful and gracious, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin. And it is this revelation of God to Moses that became for Israel, and it is for us who truly believe in the Lord Jesus right now, the foundation of our confidence and the foundation for our hope. Because, Numbers 14, 18 uh, we read, the Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression. Moses could confidently pray to the Lord on behalf of the sinning people in Israel and say this in Numbers 14, 19, please pardon the iniquity of this people according to the greatness of your steadfast love. Just as you have forgiven this people from Egypt till now. And as the people later on in their life in Israel, they returned from exile to Jerusalem, Nehemiah tells us that they confessed their sins and their, the iniquities of their fathers. They recounted the forgiveness and the grace of God to them, the stiff-necked and rebellious people that came before them, saying this in Nehemiah chapter 9, 17-21. Our fathers refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them, but they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. But you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and you did not forsake them. Even when they had made for themselves a golden calf and said, This is your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt and had committed great blasphemies, you, in your great mercy, did not forsake them in the wilderness. The pillar of cloud to lead them in the way did not depart from them by day, nor the pillar of fire by night for which the, for them, to light for them the way which they should go. You gave your good spirit to instruct them and did not withhold your manna from their mouth and gave them water for their thirst. Forty years you sustained them in the wilderness and they lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out and their feet did not swell. You see what they remember about the Lord in the wilderness. And King David too, he also clung to this truth about God through the numerous trials and the difficulties that he faced in his own life, of which there were a, a great many. In Psalm 86, verse 14 to 16, we read David saying this, O God, insolent men have risen up against me. A band of ruthless men seeks my life, and they do not set you before them. But you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Turn to me and be gracious to me. Are we sensing a theme here yet? This attribute of the Lord inspired great praise from David not o and confidence from David, not only during the seasons when he had trials and difficulties, but also during the seasons when he had plenty and peace. Psalm 103 is one of those instances where we read this, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless His holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all His benefits who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known His ways to Moses, His acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful 
and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. So you see, whether it's Israel in the wilderness, whether it's David in trial, whether it's David in comfort, the peop- whether it's the people of God returning to Jerusalem after the exile, every one of them exalts, all of them appeal to, all of them find hope and comfort in the God who is rich in mercy, rich in grace, rich in love. And this plentiful, abundant, spectacular, scriptural witness to the Lord's compassion doesn't even end there. It keeps going. It continues on, for example, in the writings of the prophets. The Lord revealed through the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 43, 25. I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. And again, in chapter 55, verse 7, the Lord declares through Isaiah, Let the wicked forsake his way, and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord, that he may have compassion on him, and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. And the Lord commissioned the prophet Jeremiah to go into Israel, proclaiming these words to Israel. Return, faithless Israel, declares the Lord. I will not look on you in anger, for I am merciful, declares the Lord. And again, through the prophet Joel, the Lord, well into a description of the justice that will fall upon unrepentant Israel should they continue in their unrepentance, called out to them in the midst of that justice falling out on them, saying this, Yet even now, even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and with mourning, and rend your hearts, not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. And even in the midst of the Lord's wrath being poured out upon those who refuse to repent of their sin, The prophet Micah clings to this truth. He clings to this revelation of God repeated throughout Scripture, saying in Micah 7, 18 to 20, Who is a God like you? Pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to our fathers in the, from the days of old. You see the relentless Old Testament witness to this God who is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And as you come to the New Testament, it doesn't change. 
We continue to see the mercy of God displayed and the forgiveness of God displayed. For example, in Luke chapter 7, a, verse 37, we read about a woman of the city who came to Jesus. When you hear that phrase, a woman of the city, recognize that this is a sinner who is well known to the men of the city. She came to Jesus in great humility, washing his feet with her hair, pouring perfume on on his feet and anointing him. And the Pharisees at the table, they looked at this woman and said things like this, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him. She is a sinner. But what did Jesus say of the woman? What did Jesus, who is God, come to us in the flesh, say about this woman or say to this woman? In Luke 7, 47, he looked at her and said, I tell you, or he looked at the Pharisees and said, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. This characteristic of the Lord, that he is gracious and merciful and forgiving, it formed and it still forms the foundational appeal of the gospel. When you move into the book of Acts, the record of the Acts of the Apostles, you see in chapter 10, Peter proclaiming the good news to the Gentiles. And how does he do it? Look at Acts 10.43. He calls out to them and said, To Jesus all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. And then later on, as Paul and Barnabas go out into Antioch and they preach, they cried out in Acts 13, 38, and 39, Let it be known to you, brothers, that through this man, Jesus, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. And the Apostle Paul, when he writes to the Ephesian believers, the Christians in Ephesus, he tells them this most amazing truth. In him, in Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. And again, to the Colossian believers, he wrote, He, the Father, has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And the Apostle John encourages us, saying, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. All of these texts only begin to scratch the surface of the Scripture's witness to the mercy and the grace of our Lord. Do you see the depths of His grace? The grand scale of His mercy that is showered upon everyone who turns to Him in faith. And do we also understand that the sins we've committed against Him, the sins that we are forgiven of if we truly do turn to Him in faith, the sins that we've committed against Him are legion. And that the wages of our sin ought to be eternal death, eternal damnation. Do we grasp and do we truly appreciate this truth that is pointed out by the psalmist in Psalm 130, verse 3? Listen to it. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, who can stand? The implied answer to that question is no one. 
None of us could stand if the Lord were not gracious and merciful, if the Lord were not slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, if the God who exists were not a God who blots out sin, who forgives the repentance, if we did not serve a God who lo- showed his love for the world in, by, by sending his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him might not perish but have everlasting life, none of us would stand. And we're all in this boat together. We would all be Destined for eternity of God's, an eternity of God's justice and wrath poured out against us for a debt of sin that we could never repay. So can you feel the weight then of David's plea in Psalm 143? Please enter not into judgment with your servant, for no one living is righteous before you. Not one of us on our own is righteous before God. We can only be righteous by believing in Christ. We can only be righteous by turning to Christ in faith and having our sins forgiven and Christ's righteousness given to us, reckoned to us, applied to our account. Do we recognize, do we really, really recognize that if not for the Lord's grace and mercy, if not for the Lord being a God abounding in steadfast love, that the words of the prophet Nahum would be what applies to us? Listen to this. In Nahum chapter 1, verse 2 and verse 6, the Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like a fire and rocks are broken into pieces by him. This is what awaits all who do not turn to him and accept his offer of mercy and grace. But because the Lord is merciful and gracious, because he knows that sinful, unrighteous, defiled human beings cannot simply just enter into his holy presence without being completely undone, the Lord, in his grace, has provided us a pathway to forgiveness. The Lord has established a method and an instrument by which we can lay hold of this mercy and this grace by which the debt of sin that we have racked up, a debt that is so staggeringly high that we are powerless to pay it, can be absolved. And that is by repenting of your sin and turning to the Lord Jesus in faith and trust. Truly repenting of your sin and turning to the Lord Jesus in faith and in trust. Jesus, the unique and one-of-a-kind Son of God. Jesus, the second person of the Trinity. Jesus, who is God himself, who took on flesh, made his dwelling among us. Jesus, who lived a perfect, sinless life. Jesus, who paid a sin-paying, sin-debt-paying death. Jesus, who rose from the dead on the third day and revealed to all the acceptability of his sacrificial work. To him, we turn. The God who is merciful and gracious showed his love to the world in this way that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. So now we understand, hopefully, the witness of Scripture that our God is merciful. But how do we know if our, we or another has truly appreciated that mercy? How do we know if we truly believe the good news of forgiveness and eternal life in Christ? How do we know if we're truly forgiven or this grace has been truly applied to our lives? Well, according to the parable that Jesus tells that we read this morning, 
We know that we are saved. We know that we are forgiven when we forgive others who have sinned against us. You see, those who truly comprehend just what they have been forgiven of by Christ will, this is a non-negotiable, will pay that forgiveness forward. Because listen to me, really, what else can we do? Would someone claim to be a child of God but exhibit the exact opposite of what he has done for us? Would someone claim to be saved by grace through faith and have their debt of sin forgiven and then live in a way that is completely contrary to the Lord who is gracious and merciful, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness? What utter foolishness to think that this is an acceptable way of living. For those who are truly saved... For those who truly recognize, who truly realize, who can truly discern what Jesus has accomplished for them, what he has paid for them, that debt, the the wages of which was eternal death that has been paid by the Lord, there really is only one response for the person who truly, truly grasps what Jesus has done for us. Gladly, frequently, unreservedly, forgiving our fellow Christians if and when they sin against us and repent. Jesus made this crystal clear in Luke chapter 17, verses 3 and 4, when he told his disciples, pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. You see that little word in there? Must. This is one of the great witnesses to a real, true, life-saving belief in Christ. This is one of the signs of the new man, one of the ways in which we know that the old self has been put off and the new self has been put on, the new self that has been created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. And again, the the witness of Scripture is that those who are truly forgiven will understand that as those being forgiven by the Lord, as Paul said in Ephesians 4.32, we ought to be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another. Listen, as Christ forgave you. As Christ forgave you. How did Christ forgive you? And again, The people of Christ will, according to Colossians 3, 12 and 13, put on as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you. So you also must forgive. There's that word again, must. This is one of the unqualified, indispensable marks of true salvation. That we who are forgiven forgive others as Christ has forgiven us. And if Scripture is to be taken seriously, if Scripture is to be believed, if the witness, then we recognize that the witness of the Word is that those who do not forgive... Those who refuse to forgive, those who hate their brother in their heart or who hold on to anger and bitterness against a fellow believer, the witness of Scripture is this to you. You do not understand the gospel nor do you believe it in any saving way. 
And while one might profess to being a Christian forgiven by God and saved by grace to everyone here who considers themselves a disciple of Christ but who bypass, ignore, or simply disobey the call of Christ to imitate one of the Lord's most precious, most exalted, most glorious attributes, set of attributes, that of mercy, grace, and forgiveness, you simply deceive yourself. Listen to the warnings of Scripture. Listen to the warnings of God's word to those who sit in this self-deception. Matthew chapter 6, we, did, we covered this about a year ago, I think. If you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Does that sound pretty clear? Again in Mark, Jesus said to his disciples in 11.25, Whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. Again in Luke chapter 6, verse 39. Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. And again in 1 John 4.20, the Apostle John's first letter, he writes, If anyone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. This is a full stop truth. If you claim to love God who is himself gracious, merciful, and forgiving, if you profess to be one forgiven of your sins by the Lord and you do not, are not responding to that by paying grace and forgiveness forward, in gratitude to, for all that the Lord has done in your life, simply put, you don't know Christ. You don't know Christ. You are not a child of Christ. This is why this warning is so terrifying. The great pastor and preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones summed it up like this, quote, the person who has seen themselves as a guilty, vile sinner before God knows their only hope of heaven is that God has forgiven them freely. The one who truly sees and knows and believes that is one who cannot refuse to forgive another. So the one who does not forgive another does not know forgiveness themselves. If my heart has been broken in the presence of God, I cannot refuse to forgive. And therefore, I say to anyone who is imagining fondly that their sins are to be forgiven by Christ, though they do not forgive anybody else, beware, my friend, lest you wake up in eternity and find Jesus saying to you, Depart from me, for I never knew you. End quote. And this is the truth that Jesus declares in our text this morning. Everything we've heard to this point, Christ sums up in a, by answering a question that has been posed to him by Peter in Matthew 18, 21. As Peter walks up to Jesus and said, and asked, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Now you see, Peter has been listening to Jesus speak about what it means to be a humble childlike disciple in this discourse in Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18 is one long singular discourse where every part builds on the other part. 
And he's been considering what's been said about leaving behind all the claims to self and all the claims to status. He's heard Jesus speak about the prescription for dealing with a brother who sins against you in the verses just before this in Matthew 18, 15 to 20, where we, were, where we learn that if your brother sins against you, you go and you tell your brother his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, then you've gained your brother, you've won your brother, you've aided your brother in their Christian maturity and in their relationship with the Lord. And Peter wants to know, well, how many times do I have to do that? And listen, Peter's just like any of us sitting here today. He is a human being who knows how difficult it can be to bear with the faults and the sins of other people. Every one of us here knows how difficult that can be, right? No doubt Peter has felt the sting and the pain and the anger that wells up in a person's heart when they are the ones who are sinned against. And so he wonders out loud, surely there are limits to this forgiveness you're talking about, right, Jesus? Surely a brother can't just sin against me over and over and then come back and repent each time and I have to keep forgiving this guy, right, or this girl? At what point does it stop, Jesus? How many times must I forgive? And this is probably a question that every single one of us has asked. How many times must I forgive a brother in Christ or a sister in Christ who sins against me and who repents? See, the rabbis and the Jewish leaders in Peter's day, they recognized as they read in the Old Testament that there was a tension, right, between the Lord's command to love your neighbor as yourself and there was this allowance for vengeance, for justice, for payback in the form of an eye for an eye. And so in the Talmud, remember we learned about that a while back, which was, it was a record of the conversations that the rabbis had with one another about how to interpret Scripture and it became an authoritative record for Judaism. In the Talmud, they, they, uh, what, they charted what assumed to be an appropriate reconciliation of the tension between justice and forgiveness. This is what they wrote. Quote, When a man sins against another, forgive him once. They forgive him a second time. They forgive him a third time. But the fourth time, they do not forgive. End quote. And so Peter, a man raised with the Talmud comes to Jesus and asks, how many times must we forgive? This word here for forgive means, how many times do I release the debt? How many times do I pardon the offender? How many times do I cancel the offense or abandon my desire to continue taking their sin into account? That's what that word means. How many times must I forgive a brother who sins against me? As many as seven times? Peter doubled the requirement of the rabbis and then rather magnanimously adds one more for good measure. And no doubt Peter assumed that he was going to get a pat on the back from Jesus for his rather impressive display of generosity and, and his forgiving spirit. But Jesus was not impressed. Peter wanted a clearly defined number so he knew what his responsibility was and where that could end. Seven times and no more. But Jesus made it clear. How many times are we supposed to forgive a fellow brother when they sin against us? Seven times? No. Every time. Every single time. As Jesus said next in 
Verse 22, Jesus said to Peter, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Now, depending on your translation, you might see 70 times or 70 times seven. The idea being an unlimited number of times. There is no limit to the forgiveness that we as disciples of Christ who've been forgiven the mountain of sin debt that we've been forgiven extend to others. The idea here is that we must never be weary of forgiving. And as often as your brother repents, as often as the one who sinned against you repents, we forgive. As an aside, as we noted in Matthew 18, 15-20, if the brother who sins against you refuses to repent, there can be no fully restored relationship and the body, the church, must deal with the unrepentant sinner until we get to that point. Remember 18, 17. Let them be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector, which means if they don't repent, your duty towards them is to avoid them, have nothing to do with them, except to continually remind them of their need to repent and be reconciled to their brother. And this is done, even this is done, not to get any sort of pound of flesh or any sort of vengeance, but it is done in hope that the offender repents of their sin and then we joyfully forgive when they do. So even in the efforts of a church to discipline an unrepentant believer, the goal is repentance, the goal is restoration, the goal is reconciliation. But here we're speaking about those who sin against us and they come to and they repent. How often must we forgive them? As we've already heard Jesus say elsewhere, if your brother sins against if your brother sins, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. If he sins against you seven times in a day, and turns to you seven times in a day and said, saying, I repent, you must forgive him. Doesn't get much clearer than that, does it? Does it? No, it does not. But to illustrate the point, Jesus, the master storyteller, sets out a parable, a well-known parable. We've all heard it. In Matthew 18, 23, he begins saying, Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. See, the way the kingdom operates, Jesus said, is similar to this. A king, meaning one who exercises authority over everyone in his domain. This king wished to clear up any financial obligations that he might have with his servants. And in verse 24, when he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. Meaning, the king summoned those with outstanding debts to stand before him to settle the accounts. And one was brought into his presence who owed 10,000 talents. Now, I want to note a few things here about that word. The word that is used here for 10,000 talents does indeed refer to a literal amount, but it is also the largest number in the Greek language. It is a word that represents a number that is so high that it can't be counted. The 10,000 talent number speaks to an insurmountable debt. Simply, if you take it simply, if literally, one talent is approximately 6,000 denarii, meaning one denarii is about the day's wages for the average worker. That means one would have to work six days a week for 1,000 weeks to earn one talent. If you worked 50 years, six days a week, you might earn a little over 15 talents. And even those that society considered rich, even if they made 100 times the amount that the average day laborer made, they might, after a lifetime of work, 
possibly crack the 1,000 talent mark. So this man is brought before the king and he owed such an amount, a number that is unbelievably high, a number we can't even begin to fathom. This number is meant to call to our minds the tremendous disparity between the debt that we owe to God, our 10,000 talents of sin, the debt that he has forgiven us, and that which we are commanded to forgive our brothers and sisters when they sin against us. You are meant to see yourself in this servant. You are meant to see yourself in this debtor to God or this debtor to the king. This person who owes a debt that he could never dream of paying off. And look at what the just consequence is in verse 25. Since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and his children and all that he had and payment be made. You see, this man didn't have the means to pay. How could he? And so as was common in the ancient world, the master ordered that the servant be sold and that his family be sold and that all his possessions be sold and payment be made. But even after selling everything this man owned, the repayment of the debt is impossible. What is recouped from selling everything that this man has is but a mere drop in the ocean of debt. So again, see yourself in what ought to become of this servant. What is to become of those whose debt remains unpaid and outstanding? And so what recourse does this servant have? What is the only thing left for this servant to do? He can't pay what he owes. He has one option and one option alone. To appeal to the master for mercy. Verse 26, So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. Anyone who would be forgiven the debt of sin must, like this servant, throw themselves upon the mercy of God in Christ. That is your only option. And apart from the mercy of the master, this servant's life is forfeit. The only option available to him is falling face down before the master and pleading for the clemency, pleading for the leniency, pleading for the compassion of this master. And that's exactly what the servant did. He fell on his knees and he implored him, have patience with me, defer your anger with me, bear patiently with me, and I will pay you everything. Now, do you think the master recognizes that this servant will be a, never be able to pay him back? Of course. Which is why we read in verse 27, out of pity, out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave his debt. See the great pity of this master who does for this man far more than the man could have ever asked or ever imagined. The servant asked for time to repay, and the master in his pity and compassion responded by offering the cancellation of this gigantic, insurmountable debt. He forgave it, he absolved it, he canceled it. Now I want you to imagine for a second that this is you. Imagine that you found yourself in such a debt, tens of millions of dollars, billions of dollars even, and the creditors are bearing down upon you. (coughs) 
Everything is closing in around you. The pressure and the weight and the burden of the situation is resting on your shoulders. You know that your family is going to suffer from this. You know that you might go to prison for this. You know that you are in a hopeless situation. And so you beg somebody, anybody for mercy. And then you receive the word. I've heard your appeal for mercy. Your debt is canceled. The loan has been absolved. Someone has taken it upon themselves to lift you out of your situation. You are free, and your family is free. How would you respond? What should your response be? His family was within an inch of being sold off to pay the debt. He'd almost lost them forever. He'd almost lost everything he owned and lost his very own life. And now he walks out from the presence of the king with no debt. Instead of the king's liquidation of this entire man's life, the servant walks out a free man, no debt to pay. How should he respond? How would you respond? Singing? Dancing? Cartwheels? Love to see that. Running to your wife or your husband, to your family, to hug and to kiss them, knowing you've got this new lease on life, happy, joyful, relieved, ready to pay forward the great blessing that has been given to him? We might think so, right? If you put yourself in this situation and you feel the weight that's been lifted, you might say, I would walk out of that place so happy. But look what this servant did. When that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. Now, what is he going to do with this servant? Is he going to go to that servant who owes him a hundred denarii and say, your debt is forgiven. I have been forgiven so much. Just cancel it. Nope. Servant went out and found a fellow servant, one in the same condition as himself. You see that phrase, fellow servant. This is not a king to a master. This is someone on the same level. And he found someone who owed him 100 denarii. Now, I want you to make no mistake here. This is a real and significant debt. 100 denarii is three months' wages. It's no small amount. For this man to, sacri- or to, to forgive such an amount is, true, is a true sacrifice. But when you think about it, 100 denarii represents one six hundred thousandth of the debt that the servant had been forgiven by his master. The point being that the forgiveness we owe to one another, while significant and while at times exceedingly difficult, it pales in comparison to the debt that has been wiped clean by Christ in our own lives. For those who truly turn to Christ in in trust, He has dealt with all of your sin. The sins you know about, which are just the tip of the iceberg, and then the ones that you don't know about, which are the rest of the iceberg underneath the water that you can't see. This servant, forgiven the 10,000 talents, now that he's located another servant, what's he going to do? Will he treat him mercifully? No. Listen to what he did to him in verse 28. He seized him. He began to choke him and said, pay what you owe. Now listen, this is where the servant started. You see that? He didn't even begin by saying, can you pay me back? No, he grabbed the servant and began choking him and demanding And the fellow servant did what he did. He fell down and pleaded with him and said, Have patience with me and I will pay you. 
And listen, the, ser- the servant here didn't just plead once. He kept entreating him. This verb is in the imperfect tense, meaning he kept on imploring him over and over and over. Have mercy on me. Have mercy on me. Be patient with me. I will pay you back. Bear with me. And listen, this servant only owed the man a hundred denarii, which meant that unlike the first servant, this is a debt that realistically could be paid off. But the first servant in verse 30, he refused. And again, that verse is in the imperfect tense, meaning that every time the servant, the, the fellow servant fell down and begged, please forgive me, every time the first servant refused. No, no, no over and over again as the fellow servant pleaded and the first servant continued to refuse. And the first servant took it even further and went, verse 30, and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. Now Jesus is a master storyteller, isn't he? What he has done here is told a parable that if you are listening to it, it ought to make your blood boil. This ought to inspire your sense of and your demand for justice as you see the cruel hypocrisy of this first servant. This parable is meant to elicit in you a sense of irritation at the gall of this servant who has been forgiven so much and yet refuses to forgive another fellow servant who owes him far less. Yes, a hundred denarii is a burdensome amount. Yes, it takes real sacrifice to forgive it. But when he does, if he does, he still comes out oh so far ahead. And the servant does something ridiculous. He puts his fellow servant in prison until he should pay the debt. Do you see the foolishness of this? Throwing a person into prison is not the way to see a debt get paid, is it? And as you hear this parable, as you grow ever more irritated by the actions of this first servant, you are meant to see yourself here. You are meant to see you in this parable. If you refuse to forgive a fellow brother or sister in the Lord who sins against you, you are the first servant. You are the one who chokes the servant, who seizes the servant, who tosses the servant into prison. You are the one who should be irritated with you. And if you don't forgive, but continue down the same road as this first servant, I want you to see the results in the parable. The master reimposes the fine, and he sends the servant off. The ESV uses the term jailers, but if you have a different translation, you might see a different word. Torturers. May it never be that this is your story. I pray that you recognize the blessing before you and offered to you this morning. You are here, you are breathing, you are being given a chance by the Lord to avoid the fate of this servant who is about to lose everything. As we read, look at verse 31. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Meaning other fellow servants, other subjects of the kings, notice the actions of this first servant because... The reality is bitterness, ingratitude, unforgiveness always have a way of affecting everybody around you. And in this case, the fellow servants were greatly distressed. This word here means sad, sorrowful, irritated, grieved, upset, and even outraged. And in their sorrow and in their outrage, they reported, they gave the master a clear and detailed account of the events that they had just seen. And the master responded in verse 32, Then... His, the first servant's, master summoned him and said to him, You 
wicked servant. You wicked servant. The master has been insulted. His mercy has been treated with contempt. It has been trampled upon by such ingratitude. The servant is revealed to be one who had zero appreciation for the offer of debt forgiveness by the master. He is revealed to be one who never truly appropriated that blessing. And as the servant enters into the master's presence again, the master cried out, Look at it, you wicked servant. The word here means you evil, worthless, degenerate. You scoundrel, you villain, you servant of such poor quality. After all I offered you, this is how you respond. I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? You hear that question? Should you not have had mercy? Again, that verb is in the imperfect tense, meaning were you not obliged to repeatedly show mercy, repeatedly show leniency, repeatedly show compassion on your fellow servant in the same way that I showed mercy upon you? Was it not your duty as one filled with gratitude, as one who truly understands that they have been saved what they had been saved have been saved of was it not your duty to continually extend mercy to your fellow servant and the implied answer the expected answer yes yes the point being that our heavenly father in his compassion offers to each one of us to forgive all of our debt to him by grace through faith in christ But how do we know if we've truly appreciated that offer? How do we know if we've truly turned to Christ and truly appropriated that saving grace in our own lives? How do we know if we've truly been forgiven by our forgiveness and mercy and grace freely and repeatedly given to our fellow servants? And if you don't have this, if you don't know this, if you aren't practicing this, you don't know the gospel. You don't understand the gospel. And if you don't understand the gospel, how can you be saved? If someone sins against you and you refuse to forgive, it's not eternal joy that awaits you, but something terrible and terrifying as we read next. Look at verse 34. And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. Again, the word the ESV uses here is kind of nice, the jailers. As nice as you can make this word. But if you've got the CSB or the NASB, you'll see torturers. The word here refers to those who are under order to torture and mercilessly inflict severe pain upon the man. The word suggests, the word points to the eternal consequences that await those who commit the atrocious, the heinous, the awful crime of withholding mercy to others when mercy has been held out to you. Being delivered over to the jailers illustrates the hellfire, illustrates the eternal torment that awaits all who do not truly turn to the Lord Jesus in faith. These will be delivered over to the jailers until they can pay all of their debt, which, as we have learned, is an absolute impossibility. The only thing any of us can appeal to is the mercy of God, the forgiveness of God, and again, for the sake of clarity. Those who refuse to forgive their fellow servants while claiming themselves to be forgiven are deluded and self-deceived. If you would be saved, you must turn from your wicked sin before it is too late, before you are delivered over to the jailers, before you suffer these consequences. 
You must truly throw yourself at the feet of the master for mercy. Otherwise, as Jesus said in verse 35, so also will my heavenly Father do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Meaning, in like manner, or this is what my heavenly Father will do to you, to every one of you, if you do not stop taking offenses of your repentant fellow servants into account. There aren't many more terrifying and more blessed texts than the one we just read this morning. Blessed in that it reveals the depths of God's mercy and forgiveness available to all who truly call upon Him, who appeal to Him, who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and who understand and have all their sins forgiven. All of us who have the 10,000 talent debt that we owe, wiped clean, settled, and paid for by Christ at the cross, To truly experience that is the greatest blessing that this life can offer to any of us. And for all who truly grasp this, for all who lay hold of the Lord's offer of grace to such undeserving sinners, they will repeatedly, 77 times, 70 times 7, every time, knowing what we have been forgiven of, even when it is very costly, we will forgive others their trespasses and sins against us because we always come out ahead. Always. The text is terrifying in that it confronts each and every one of us with a question. Am I saved or not? Do I believe in Jesus or not? Have I been forgiven or not? Have I experienced, have I truly experienced the waves of the Lord's mercy? And if you really want to know the answer to that question, there's another question you must grapple with. Do you forgive your brothers from your heart? If not, you do not know the grace of God. You haven't experienced his mercy. And unless you repent, one day you will be delivered to the jailers. And here's where the rubber hits the road for each and every one of us. How dear is Christ to you? How desperate are you for mercy? How much do you recognize the debt of sin that you owe to the Lord? How important is your eternal salvation to you? There are only two options before you. Turn to Jesus and experience his mercy, a mercy that will, as a result, be extended to others, or play the professing Christian game while not actually being a Christian. The choice, the decision is left up to you. Which option will you decide upon? If I could make an exhortation to you, I would pray and exhort you to choose life, to throw yourself upon the Lord's mercy to be forgiven, and that this true forgiveness would reflect in your being forgiven, forgiving of others. To the praise and the glory of our Lord. Amen. Amen. Father, we thank you and praise you and honor you for this text that you have given to us in your word. I thank you for the comforts that it gives us and the blessedness of recognizing that those who are truly saved are forgiven a debt that we could never have repaid. And I praise you for the warning and the terror of the text in shaking us up to help us consider whether or not we have truly come to you in saving faith. For everyone here who, is, who has truly come to the saving knowledge of Jesus and who is forgiven of their sin and extends that forgiveness over and over and over again to their repentant brothers, I pray that you would comfort them this morning and help them to continue doing what they are doing and even more. 
And for those who are unforgiving, who are holding on to bitterness, but who are claiming to be Christians, I pray that you would just punch them in the soul and help them, shake them, so that they come to you truly and experience the joy and the wonder of having their debt wiped clean. We pray all of this in the power of and name of Jesus Christ. Amen.